Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. The continuing story of our band of heroes, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, C-3PO, R2-D2, and Chewbacca. And introducing Lando Calrissian. It's an epic of romance. Of heroes and villains. They cross trackless voids to unknown worlds. Odyssey against oppression. A big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. The Empire Strikes Back is 40 years old. After its May 17th premiere in Washington, D.C., the film went on international release on the 20th of May with its London premiere, before going on nationwide release on the 21st of May. I don't remember the exact date I saw The Empire Strikes Back, but it was probably around my birthday in June. As with most kids my age, Empire was hugely anticipated, and I was already a huge Star Wars mark, reading the comics and novel, buying the action figures, and picking up any information about the film from TV shows such as Clapperboard or Blue Peter. I saw Empire at the Ritz Cinema, part of the ABC Cinema chain down in town. Back in the day, Ritz was at the end of Station Road, and opened on the 7th of March 1938. It was remodelled several times over the years, finally settling down to become a three-screen facility in 1977, with seating capacities of 485, 321 and 106. Probably pitiful by the standards of today's multiplexes. Despite a few hiccups, the Ritz was incredibly successful, until a new virgin multiplex opened in the town, and despite cutting prices to attract more patrons, the Ritz closed forever on the 10th of April 1997. Sadly, the building was not deemed worthy of being granted listed status, and was demolished in 2002 to make way for a shopping centre. The Ritz was a beautiful and ornate old cinema, something I'm sure I had no appreciation of at the time. 
Sure, screen three, the smallest of the screens, was probably smaller than most TV sets are now, but it had lovely Roman columns, a massive foyer, and the traditional sweets desk, where grubby kids could mither their parents to purchase lions-made ice lollies and bottles, yes, bottles of Coke. The seats were red and quite tiny and packed in compared to what we're used to nowadays. But I nestled into my seat, prepared to journey to that galaxy far, far away. The surroundings melted away. Obviously, before the film started, I was greeted by commercials like this. Because it refreshes it. Papa, 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 papa. All the beers cannot reach. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle dove. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Sing with me. curtains would part and close quite regularly between the ads and the trailers, so the ushers, remember them, could walk down the aisles with their little trays and sell you more ice creams and chocolate bars. Finally, the lights dimmed, the curtains parted one last time, and the Fox fanfare began. and the blue lettering, which to an entire generation has superseded once upon a time. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. More silence, rudely interrupted by the loud fanfare that we have now come to know as the Star Wars March, or theme.
Originally Luke's theme, this became the catch-all Star Wars theme as the films became a saga and then a world-changing event. To be honest, the moment the words Star Wars fills the screen, especially in a large cinema, with that magnificent John Williams score behind it, that's when I'm at my most content. And it comes from here. The first Star Wars film I ever saw in a cinema on first release. The optimism of that moment is still palpable, and the feeling that we are to be treated to the best thing ever still gives me joy, even in the weaker movies, or the ones that I perceive to be weaker anyway. Different strokes and all that. As Empire unspooled before my seven-year-old eyes, I was captivated. Empire was different to Star Wars, which I hadn't seen, but I'd read the comic and the novel, although I likely didn't understand the latter, listened to the album, both the soundtrack and the story of, played with the action figures and devoured Star Wars comics weekly with its many new adventures. None of that, though, could prepare me for actually seeing it, 40 feet high, with that score and those effects. The story was engrossing, the characters funny, and certain moments chilling. Many and numerous are the talking heads that have discussed ad nauseum the film in the 40 years since it came out. You know, the standard stuff, Empire is darker, more mature. That wasn't really something that crossed my mind back then. Ah, you just knew. It was awesome. Empire became yet another thing to be devoted to. Once again, there were loads of lovely merchandise to enjoy. New action figures led by this new guy, Boba Fett, and followed by Luke in his khaki jumpsuit, Han in his Hoth Parker jacket, and Leia without the headphones on. I lapped up the comics adaptation, loving the additions to the story. The Wampas attacked the Rebels on Hoth. Why wasn't that in the film? And Yoda, the mysterious and hysterical funny little frogman that was now teaching Luke, was completely different. In the comic, he's purple. What's all that about? Again, the movie could be relived in comics form, but again on vinyl, with the release of another story of, another double soundtrack album, and more comics. Ah, yes, the soundtrack and the comics. More than anything, I loved the soundtrack and the comics. For me, they were the best ways to relive the film. Sure, I'd enjoyed the novel by Donald F. Glutt, it was fine, but it didn't have the visuals. And Star Wars is all about the visuals. We got so much more from Empire than we did in Star Wars. The Super Star Destroyer, the AT-ATs, or AT-ATs, who really cares, the Bounty Hunters, Cloud City, so much more. More than anything, Empire was visually spectacular, but without being able to see it again and again like nowadays, I had to make do. And so, I did. I would put the soundtrack on, read and reread the comic adaptation over and over again. Thanks to Al Williamson and Carlos Garzon's spectacular artwork, the movie lived in my hands. Stunning, beautiful, full-page spreads of At-At Walkers firing, great shots of the Star Destroyer's evocative moments captured magnificently, such as Luke's confrontation in the cave with Darth Vader. I had that adaptation almost three times. First in paperback novel form, partially in the comics in black and white for reasons I'll come to later, and in the 1980s Star Wars Annual published at Christmas. Later on I found a copy of the Marvel Super Special in a bookstore in Blackpool. Then, as now, I loved comparing the differences. The comic had more pages, more panels, more gorgeous poster shots. The paperback had weird Yoda to fit in my pocket. 
I don't recall if these differences ever bothered me, and I certainly hadn't heard the word cannon. If I had, I might wonder why the Empire was more powerful than ever, despite the crawl to Star Wars promising us that the destruction of the Death Star would restore freedom to the galaxy. I didn't wonder that. I didn't care. And the score. Honestly, what can I say about the John Williams score that hasn't been said a thousand times before by people far more learned than I? All I knew was, it was fantastic. Better than Star Wars. The cover was just as minimalist. It was Darth Vader's almost transparent head on a starscape. Whilst the back cover was the movie poster. Weird. Being a double album, it was gatefold, with lots of lovely pictures and text. By today's standards, the soundtrack to Empire would be considered a disappointment. Even in double album form, numerous musical moments, cues, I would later learn they were called, were missing. And a lot of the album, as with Star Wars, was concert pieces, arranged for performances rather than what was in the film. Again, I didn't care. It was sumptuous and gorgeous, and I just immersed myself in it. The running order was all over the place. The main theme was followed by Yoda's theme, the final duel before Lando's palace, and the battle in the snow featured music not even in the film. Again, I didn't care. The score was magical. No more so than the centrepiece of the record, the Imperial March. Darth Vader dominates The Empire Strikes Back. When he isn't on screen, the characters are talking about him, or being scared of him, or running away from him. He's a relentless, unstoppable force, a Terminator long before Arnold Schwarzenegger, and such a character deserves a memorable theme. John Williams delivered. It's arguably just as recognisable as the main theme. It's all over the film, underscoring Vader and his constant threat to our heroes. It's familiar, featuring undertones of a death march, but also new. It became so synonymous with the character, some people believe that it's in Star Wars. It isn't. It made its debut here. Gloriously. Armed with the soundtrack LP and the comics adaptation, I'd relive the movie again and again. I sent off for special accessories to the action figures, a backpack for Chewie to carry the disassembled C-3PO around in, or some masks for the characters to wear as they wandered around the giant space slug. I bought the Bounty Hunter action figures because they were cool characters you could have your own adventures with. Oddly, Dengar was my favourite, not Boba Fett. I'd never really been of the cult of Boba Fett, even as a kid. I was made up years later to discover Dengar was a cockney. How long before Jason Statham is cast as him? I'd love to see that on The Mandalorian. On TV, specials would show up irregularly, like SPFX The Empire Strikes Back showing how the special effects were achieved. Magazines like the Empire Collector's Edition would do the same, but in print. 
over at the newsagents, change was happening. Star Wars Weekly, which had been hugely successful for Marvel UK's publishing division, just as the regular monthly Star Wars comic had been in the United States, underwent a metamorphosis. See, the UK's Marvel was never afraid to jump on a bandwagon if they felt it would sell a few more copies. When the Nicholas Hammond-led Spider-Man TV show started airing on ITV, the comic changed its name to Spider-Man TV Comic to capitalise on the publicity. And Star Wars did the same, although the numbering never changed. So starting with the cover date of May 29th and issue 118, Star Wars Weekly became Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back Weekly. Twelve shiny pennies got you the Bob Larkin cover seen on the Super Special, some free action transfers, and the first couple of chapters of the adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back. The adaptation ran for a whopping 18 weeks, splitting each US issue into three parts, finally concluding with issues that hit the stands on the 24th of September. I drifted away from the weekly comic a little here. After all, I had the adaptation, a nice little pocket-sized novel, so I didn't really see the point of buying it all again in chopped-up segments. I was spending my money on imported editions of Starlog magazine, which showed up, if you knew where to look, in certain newsagents around the country. These offered juicy behind-the-scenes interviews, pictures and speculation about the next movie, the tantalisingly titled Revenge of the Jedi. One of the problems the Marvel UK stuff had was that it was a weekly comic, as were pretty much all of the kids' periodicals on the market at that point, and as such they were forever running out of material. They generated a lot of in-house strips to fill in the weeks where they'd caught up with the US publishing schedule, but that wasn't something they could afford to do on a regular basis. With a few exceptions, there was a period of time where pretty much every issue of the UK Star Wars comic was generated from sources other than the US monthly series. Issues 94 through 99 and 104 through 115 featured work that originally appeared, albeit unfinished, in Pizzazz magazine, which Marvel UK printed all of, including the strips left languishing by Pizzazz's sudden cancellation. This was followed up by issues that were prepared for for the US monthly by the regular creative team of writer Archie Goodwin and artist Carmine Infantino, but unused for some reason. This situation was untenable, and as such, with issue 140, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back weekly became Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back monthly, and I jumped back on board, devouring the comic every month, happily trading in the weekly instalments for a full 22-page Star Wars story every issue. This was the golden age for UK Star Wars, and I was devouring every moment of it. Issue 141 gained some notoriety over the years for featuring the uncensored ending to the story, The Dreams of Cody Sunchild. Granted, I knew nothing about that. I just thought it wasn't a very good story. After that, though, gold. Even though Marvel UK messed around with the order of the reprints, this period featured the start of the David Michelinie, Walt Simons and Tom Palmer era, possibly the best the US comics ever got. But it also featured new stories not seen in the US, originals written by people like Alan Moore and drawn by then new talents like Alan Davis, just before both men would make a massive splash on the newly launched Captain Britain. Alongside new covers from the likes of John Ridley, John Higgins and Paul Neary, and the return of the best-selling photo covers, the series renamed itself again, going back to the simpler Star Wars with issue 159 in July of 1982, as the world geared up for the newly renamed Return of the Jedi. 
just when I thought it couldn't get any better. Issue 167 started a new backup strip, The Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. The magazine never got better than this. I was on a high. My interest was at fever pitch. These monthly comic strips and the soundtrack and, of course, the action figures had kept the fires burning for three long years. And in the interim, I'd seen Empire again, this time as a double bill with Star Wars, again at the Ritz over the Christmas of 1981. My first viewing of Star Wars. I was ecstatic. Even though I'd read the book, the comics, even seen the making of Star Wars in the cinema, my first viewing of the film at the pictures was a joy. Knowing everything about the film could not spoil the experience. Keeping the flame alight was the first TV screening of Star Wars on ITV on Sunday, October 24th, 1982 at 7.15pm. My grandfather had just purchased a VCR literally over the summer of 82 and Star Wars was the second thing I taped with a view to keeping a copy of. I distinctly remember my great-grandma babysit me that night as my grandparents were out and she watched it with me. I didn't even know what the pause button did, so I would stop the tape when the adverts came on and press record again when the film restarted. This resulted in my copy having a few seconds of static in the movie every 25 minutes or so. And to this day, I remember where all the ad breaks were. The Empire Strikes Back, though, made me a proper fan. The gap in between Empire and Jedi kept me going thanks to the comics and the action figures, the anticipation of the event, often better than the event itself. The Empire Strikes Back is 40 this month, this weekend, in fact, if you're listening to this when I release it. It's still my favourite Star Wars film. It's still my favourite Star Wars soundtrack. And it's still my favourite comic book adaptation of a film. The Marvel comic series was never better than in between Empire and Jedi, with the Shearer Bree storyline being particularly potent. And it's a testament to the writer, plotters and artists for those comics. Writer David McAlini, artist Walt Simonson and Tom Palmer, that despite all the restrictions, despite the ending to Empire seemingly offering nowhere to go, and despite having to essentially wheel spin for three years, they managed to create some of the most memorable Star Wars comic stories ever. Ask any of us that were there at the time and read those comics as they were coming out. The Shira Bree storyline stuck in the head. The Empire Strikes Back also holds the distinction of being the only thing I can ever remember winning. I entered a competition to win a copy of the film on VHS video cassette in 1984, and I won. I still remember the joy when it dropped through the letterbox and how I faked illness the next day so I could stay off school and watch it. I'm not proud of that, but let's be honest, I wouldn't remember that day at all if I'd gone to school. This way, I have a childhood memory. And that's what Empire means to me. Childhood. Playing with my Star Wars figures in the snow, pretending it's Hoth. Crashing my X-Wing into a mud puddle at the bottom of the garden and using my Yoda figure to force lift it out. Going down to the shopping centre in Car Lane, ostensibly for milk, but actually picking up the Star Wars monthly comic that printed the story, Pariah. Bombing down the tight alleyway to get there, pretending my bite was an X-Wing and this was the Death Star Trench. The excitement of waiting for Jedi. Who was the other? Was Vader Luke's dad or was he lying? Could Lando be trusted? Would they find Han? All of this was excitement on a grand scale. And it's why I can't stay mad at Star Wars. I've never lost the faith throughout the late 80s and early 90s when nothing was being produced, throughout the prequel hate, which did happen, 
Don't let those with memory loss tell you that it didn't. I remained faithful, loving it all. Even now, with the rise of Skywalker being, in my opinion, the weakest of the Star Wars movies, I can still enjoy it. Because it reminds me of better times. Easier times, less political, less miserable times. It reminds me of being a kid again. And what's better than that? So let's salute The Empire Strikes Back. The best, I will brook no argument, Star Wars film ever made. Join me. Ode to the Empire Strikes Back. I wanted to do something for its 40th, but it was it was kind of difficult to come up with an angle on Empire that every other Star Wars podcaster or YouTube hasn't done before. You know, it's it's probably one of the most talked about things on the internet because it's Star Wars and geek fandom, Star Wars fandom essentially invented all this shit. Some of it not pleasant, some of it very pleasant, depending on what you watch. So I hope that you enjoyed that. We've just got time for a little email before I have to move on and go and do something else, unfortunately. Uh, it's from John and or Maggie Schaefer Hames. I'm presuming it's John rather than Maggie. By any other name. Hi, Andy. Hope all is well and that you and your family are in good health. I loved your episode on By Any Other Name, which happens to be my favourite episode of Star Trek. It doesn't hurt that this was the very first episode I ever saw. I'd seen Star Trek 3 on cable when I was 11 or 12, but it was a few years after that before the original series was on in syndication. This was also when I got a VCR, so I taped every one of them I could, and this was the first one I was able to see. It was also the first one on that tape of four or five episodes. I probably watched this episode more than any in the original series, and it's great. You touched on everything that I love about it and a few things I hadn't considered. Kirk is my favourite captain not named Sisko, and I appreciate your staunch and valid defence of both the character and Shatner's portrayal of him. It was particularly timely for me given that Maggie and I, as well as Lane from Batman Books, The Dark Knight in Prose, are doing a chapter a day of Diane Duane's The Wounded Sky. Shameless but topical plug for the win. One of the better portrayals of Kirk in any medium, which wouldn't be possible if it weren't for episodes like this one. 
Oh, and my younger brother and I had the exact same emotional experience that you did when it was the woman officer whose giant Dungeons and Dragons D20 was crumbled. And this was the first episode I ever saw. I knew also that Spock had died, so I knew this show wasn't messing around. Stay safe, John Schaefer Hames. Well, thank you, John. I am listening intently to your reading of The Wounded Sky. I read that book myself just this past, um, not this week, the week before. About five days I ploughed through it. Every bit as good as I remember it. One of my favourite Star Trek novels. I've got loads to read that I've never read before. I don't know why I plucked that off the shelf to give it a reread, but I'm glad I did. And I'm very much enjoying your reading of it. Regarding the, the defence of Shat, yeah, I often feel the need to defend Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk was a hero and a role model when I was a young child, and it bothers me no end to see him portrayed as this swaggering, boorish sexually motivated conqueror of women, warmonger, which he isn't. If you actually watch the fucking show, he was intelligent and thoughtful and did value the the input of his men, but ultimately the decision lay with him. He's not a rampant womanizer, and he never fucked a green woman until those risible JJ movies. That's the portrayal of Kirk I absolutely cannot stand. And that's the one thing I can't really forgive those movies for. Even though I do enjoy Star Trek Beyond a great deal, I can't forgive them for that sexist, ultimate male white privilege version of Kirk, the guy who never worked for anything that he's got, who failed upwards spectacularly at every every instant, the guy who never went through what Kirk went through with Codus the Executioner on the Farragut, who was basically just given everything in his life. I would imagine that all those people on that film are ardent lefties who bang on about male white privilege and yet the they wrote the quintessential male white privilege. Just a guy who got what he wanted for no reason whatsoever. He didn't earn it or anything like that. It was a gross distortion of the character and I actively loathed it in both Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. They toned it down a lot for Star Trek Beyond, which I can only assume was because Simon Pegg wrote that one, not the usual J.J. Abrams Kurtzman team. And, you know, his his sexism in that first and second film just isn't Kirk. Kirk treated women with respect, and he very, very, very rarely, if ever, dated a member of his crew. You know, there's that one episode, I think, is it Dagger of the Mind? Where we learn that a member of his crew he had a one-night stand with at a Christmas party. And um, she's now a member of his crew and he's deeply embarrassed by the fact that he's had sexual relations with a member of his crew. Whereas in Star Trek Into Darkness, it's implied he sexually harassed Dirt Nurse Chapel off the ship. I just like, fuck off, JJ. Anyway, that became a rant about something else, didn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Anyway, if you want to email in um, about anything at all, heykisscomics at virginmedia.com. I've wrote and recorded and released this episode in the space of one weekend on the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of May 2020. My next two episodes are already edited and in the can and ready to go, which are the epilogue to Stanley's run and his final five or six issues regular on the title. Those two will be coming up over the next couple of weeks. Hope you enjoy them. Take care, stay safe, and I'll see you all real soon. Goodbye. Aboard the Star Destroyer, Darth Vader is holding Han Solo a prisoner. 
to lure Luke Skywalker and the Millennium Falcon into a trap. Will he succeed? Only you can decide with Star Wars Toys.